constitutional convention is that judges, like many other appointments, will be made by the Governor General only on the advice of the government and by convention. The actual office holder who gives that advice for judicial appointment is the Prime Minister. So the Prime Minister advised the Governor General, the Governor General at constitutional convention makes the appointments. That's how the system kind of squares the constitutional language of who makes the appointments with the appointment of democracy. Arises though that constitutional conventions are, according to a long line of authority, not judicially enforceable. So, what that means is if the Governor General were to disregard the advice of the Prime Minister and appoint somebody who the Prime Minister had never Led to the courts not taking a lot of uh, strong interventionist stances when it comes to complaints around slow walking appointments and things like that. I was involved in a case uh, a few years back called the Lanning Prime Minister of Canada. They made a very similar argument that the Prime Minister at that time, Cynthia uh, Harper, was nominating appointments for senators. And was denying people representation that the Constitution contemplated and was seeking relief very similar to this. And the Federal Court and Federal Court of Appeals both said, no, I'm not going to get involved. The question of making these appointments is only held by convention by the Prime Minister, and it's not a matter of the courts to oversee and impose them. Which is why I was very surprised, frankly, yesterday. Thank you. 
what to kind of get your data to get a chance to actually be able to sign to it. And there may be trees and trees and bushes and everywhere that could be killed, you know, in time by judges to be able to do the work that's necessary. And this becomes even more solutions that Chief Justice suggested in light of the Supreme Court of Canada's own decision with respect to delays in criminal matters and affording cases of scenarios and the idea of being a willingness at the courts. We can't provide justice, we can't hear cases in a reasonable time. We couldn't even put stages in the end of the list because people who, you know, maybe for, for safety reasons need to be separated from the community are incompetent to do so if the case goes just the way. Uh, so there's a you know, beyond just the good function of the courts in the civil and administrative realm, you know, where I work, there is a safety component of the idea that I suggest. But if you had to ask me to better, I would say why I'm going to use the Constitutional Convention trying to enforce it, and uh, there's written laws so that we can't do that. But what the Court of Appeals of the Federal Court says yesterday is no, I Focusing on his non-prerogative powers, 
hallucination groups are led to lack of concentration, but the hallucination groups were in favor of the And that's something I've never really seen before, where the hallucination groups challenge the refusal to issue permits to build a mine on the basis of a lack of concentration. But intuitively, it makes absolute sense. There really is almost built in my own narrow thinking, um, which, you know, I know a lot of people on Skype are like too often uh, aligned on, you know, indigenous uh, interests and environmental interests. So they have a lot of things in mind. In this case, these hallucinations are an economic benefit to this mind that's sufficient to merit um, their support. And so they wanted to use the consultation process to help the decision makers understand why they were supporting this and the case for the mine as opposed to being opponent of the mine. And they said that the best thing to do were promise consultation on the recommendation before it was a final decision that didn't happen and that was reached with the result. So, you know, not a case I'll spend a lot of time on, uh, but it's an interesting wrinkle on a topic that we're going to be looking at in a few weeks' time. Um, okay, so I assume there's one more question for that one. Uh, so I'm going to move away from the, from the news portion and we're going to talk now about the course material and we're going to get into um, the chapter. And really, this is getting into the nature of this course. We're leaving behind procedural review. We are now looking at substantive review, substantive judicial review, where the courts are going to look and see whether the substantive issues are being addressed. Not the well process that you follow to get there, but the, what did you actually decide and on what basis can we allow this decision to stand? Now, we've been setting up getting here a lot, uh, which I'm not spring this on you here as to why we can do substantive review. Uh, spoken many times about the notion that the courts have decided they will presume there are limits to what the legislature intended to allow the executive body to do. We've seen that over and over again in the procedural fairness context with the idea that we're going to presume we were entitled to act unfairly. We've seen the gloss on that, which is that if the statute explicitly says you can act in a way that otherwise might seem unfair to the courts, that does give you a right to challenge the statute's constitutionality. And now we're seeing the other side of things, which is we're going to presume decisions in a way that either incorrect, unreasonable,
this this question of why not uh, you know, why not just fill the space of the Supreme Court Congress versus the case for the And there's a few reasons. Um, you know, one thing is that will have as long as it is, it's 
Another thing that I think framing it as the judge's preferred interpretation does for you is that it more squarely causes the question, so whose interpretation should be the one that wins here? Should it be the judge's preferred interpretation or the tribunal's preferred interpretation? And that's kind of the, the question that I believe Thank you. 
in quality of section 58. So this hadn't been reasonable in the standard of fraudulence in which it would be used under the So that's a pathway to why we still have the standard. And some lawyers said, well, hold on a second. It's unclear. Swayla says, it doesn't make sense. There's no difference between these two things. So judges, you can't then say there is a difference between the two things and you have to apply patent reasonableness in DC. You just have to read it. Do you want to think kindly unreasonable, a high level of deference, 
and you need to get to that level of ordering on the inside. Reasonableness means something that is unreasonable, and we are going to see the details on how that works in the Book of Babylon. So those are the three standards that we're going to look at in these question marks. So, as a question standard of review, and the basic rules of the court and time that means somewhat different, I want to get next to this question of jurisdiction. Obviously, I've been touching on this already in the class, and I'll continue to do so. Um, but jurisdiction gets a little bit tricky in the substantive review world because there was They were to 
Is the same theory, a theoretical problem, which is if we're always talking about jurisdiction, how do we separate jurisdiction from the two categories? We come back to this because it's talked about in the Bible, but I want to raise it first because this is the really starting story of Earlier, these are these clauses that are put in the legislation 
almost comical how the legislature tries to get more and more and more clear and saying, well, what is the goal? That means good. Yeah. The decisions of this don't work all the time because there is the potential that the person does something that they never would have intended to do. They start doing a question that's just so hard to make an order you know, observe the property something appealable or house made how clean that basement is because he gets a level of absolute absurdity. Well if this
always got things. Always got things to know about things. And then here he comes in, and he gives me this incredible joke. And then it says, even if you brought your question to the right place, you could catch them in the ground with the fish over here. Is the decision is patently unreasonable. And this is that dignity where they say, aha, I don't think the legislature ever intended to let an executive actor make patently, openly, clearly, evidently, obviously unreasonable decisions. I think that against the rule of law. And I just more factually don't think any legislator would ever have chosen to do that. You know, here's your drug deal. Go make crazy decisions with it. And it doesn't make sense as an assumption. So the beauty is the engagement of the court makes that leap. Where it's not just about whether we went to the right shops or the problem, but now it's also about how we were getting your decision. If it goes so far as to be patently So, I'll give you uh, a bit of a TV. Uh, was a case, obviously, involving the community environment, and there was a strike. And there was legislation which seemed to strike a balance through prohibiting picketing. And also prohibiting employers from replacing striking employees. So, until now, union members don't make it, employers do not hire any staff to work, and that's a perfectly balance. This gets before the labor to be fair, and there is the very difficult question of statutory interpretation that comes up. One of those questions that I think is really truly ambiguous, and you can read it in the And the question is what about if the employer, the management side of the, of the employer, what about if they start taking on responsibilities of striking workers? Is that offside to the prohibition on replacing? Or can management go ahead and do these jobs, not be replacing the work that they're seeking to do so much of themselves? The provision at issue says the employer shall not replace the striking employee or fill their position with any other employee. So Think about that language. What matters is whether this phrase any other employee modifies just fill their position or also modifies replace the striking employee. If you read it as the employer shall not replace the striking employee with any other employee, that would seem to leave no room for the management. 
But if it's simply broad, you can't replace this employee. That was the foreclosed management stepping in to act as a replacement for those employees. And the concept can be replacing from an employee or the department of management is doing jobs as well. The point here is that it's a provision that just enters a clear ambiguity. There really isn't an obvious way to read that. So this gets up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and in addition to sort of shattering the wall and saying, no, you couldn't possibly allow for patent language in this decision. In addition to that, the court shows ambiguity, and they say, listen, I'm not really satisfied that there is a I think reasonable people could take both sides of the employer's exercise. So the court brings it along the way I was anticipating being in the courts with the correctness. They say, well, who should be answering this question? Who should have the final word here? Is it me, the court, and the legislature interpretation, or is it the labor board? There's really no way to contact. And the court looks a number of factors that would cause really the relative expertise of the bodies. It says, well, we don't understand this labor dispute. The labor board sure has more expertise than the courts. So it probably makes sense for the decision to land it down. So they say, it's not really clear in this case. And I'll step in only if it's patently unreasonable how they have decided it. But what we see is really is a huge swing from the decision common direction off to maybe you're the right person to decide this, but if you go so far in your reasoning that it's patently unreasonable, obviously unreasonable, I guess I have no choice but to step in. So one thing is that no linear and contextual research is any different between these two standards. It's historically the pattern of results came first. That kind of makes sense. It doesn't create a pattern of reasonableness. But it really is more that they started by saying, well, if it's absolutely patent and obviously crazy, I guess we have to step in. And then they sort of realized, well, it could be a little less obviously crazy, and we still would have to step in. But so that's fundamentally tricky. One thing, the big, big concept to take out of there is we snatched through this wall by saying that nobody has to run their own job. And I think that is this idea that I can't let something stand that's patently unreasonable. And then the next thing is jumping off in our next discussion, which is to say, well, why should the board be the one who decides this? Primarily because of their relative expertise as compared to the courts. Because 